John chapter 15. Yes? Okay. John 15, we're down by verse number uh, one. <laughs> Can't get off verse one. So, all right. So let me give you some, some positive imagery to think about. Just uh, in a few months, all right? Just a few months, a few weeks. When spring rolls around, right? Hallelujah. <laughs> Many of you are going to engage in some form of husbandry. Husbandry. Husbandry is the care, cultivation, and breeding of crops. So whether it's your garden or that little, you know, your tomato plants, whatever you got going on, right? I went to the Aidlers the other day. Josh has got some interesting thing going on there. He's growing some stuff. He's got his little uh, tabletop garden over there. So, but when spring rolls around, you're going to do your spring planting. You're going to maybe put your tomato plants out there. You're going to be a husbandman. If you do any planting or tend to that garden, that's what you technically are, a husbandman. Now, with that said, John 15 says this, Jesus Christ speaking to his disciples in that upper room, and he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Right? Jesus Christ calls himself the true vine, and he points to his father as the husbandman. You know why? Because the father is always engaged in the care and cultivation, not of crops, but of people. He's trying to grow you into something. He's trying to get fruit out of you. He's trying to raise you up into something great and glorious for God and the betterment of yourself. And he calls them the husbandmen because the father is so good at raising his people that he's the husbandman. There's nobody better than him. He invented the whole thing. He knows how to do it. He's the guy. He's the husbandman. In fact, in the book of James, chapter 5, verse 7, he's talking about Israel. And the Bible says, The husbandman waited for the precious fruit of the earth. Right? That's what he's doing. He's looking down at that nation. He's hoping that nation will bear the fruit he wants to see in the years to come. When speaking about the church, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says, Ye are God's husbandry. It's not just Israel he's cultivating. It's you. He's cultivating you. He's working on you. He's trying to get something out of you that's glorious. He's trying to get some fruit. So I want to talk today. Here's your title. My father, the husbandman. What do you want to talk about? My father, the husbandman. Because the Lord conceived the physical principles of husbandry. You know that, right? Like there's a way to do things if you want something to grow. The Lord conceived those physical things. Why? To point to the spiritual process that it meant to represent. So we're going to talk about that today. Because in that upper room, who is Jesus Christ talking to? He's talking to disciples. And he wanted disciples to know that his father is the husbandman. He's going to be working on you guys. He's going to be cultivating something in you guys. He's going to try to get some fruit out of you guys. The father cultivated Jesus Christ. He says, I'm the true vine. My father's the husbandman. And he's going to take care to bring up those disciples too. So we're going to talk about my father, the husbandman. And we're going to talk about how God works to cultivate you. 
how God works to bring forth fruit out of you. How does husbandry point to what God is trying to do in us? So we'll pray and then I hope this could be a blessing to you because it was a blessing to me. Lord, we love you today. We thank you today. We praise you today. Oh, dear God, who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been your counselor? Lord, you conceived all these things in the physical world to point to spiritual things in our lives. So help us to see the parallels, Lord. Help us to be reminded. Help us to trust, Lord, that our father is the husbandman. It's our great, great father that's trying to bring this fruit out of us, Lord. And sometimes things hurt and sometimes things don't. But, Lord, it's our father who's doing this for us and through us and in us. So, Lord, just lead us into that truth. Comfort your people. Strengthen your people. And if someone is lost here today, help them to see the need for everlasting life, what Jesus Christ did on that cross, that he, as we sang, Jesus paid it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 5, way back there. Isaiah chapter 5. All right. Isaiah chapter 5. All right. So we're just going to break down some principles of husbandry that point to my father, the husbandman. And let's do the first one. <clears throat> now, let's just go through the process, all right, gardeners. Before you plant, the Lord's got to clear the field, right? So before you plant, the Lord's got to get some stuff out of there that's going to hinder the growth. And in Isaiah chapter 5, you see he's talking about it in terms of his people. He says, in Isaiah 5, verse 1, he says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. So God's got a vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine. You see, before the Lord planted the vine which would bring the fruit, he gathered out the stones, which would hinder the growth. You see, that's the first principle of husbandry we got to get. If you want something to grow, first, some stuff has got to get cleared out that's going to get in the way. Before you plant that garden, you clear out what obstructs the growth in that garden. You go and you gather out those stones and that debris and those things that are only just going to hinder what, what nature wants to do. And before the husbandman plants, he clears out those hard things that hinder growth. In Mark chapter 4, you remember the parable of the sower? The stony ground doesn't support life because it gets no root. There's too many things in the way for the roots to get down. So you might see a little something-something, but it doesn't last. And God wants to see some fruit that lasts, so he's got to get the stones out of there. That stony ground, those stones have to move so things can grow. Listen, if you're not saved here today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, before a man gets saved, you know what God's got to get out of him? His self-righteousness. Yeah. Nobody's going to call on Jesus Christ to save him if he still thinks he's a pretty good guy without God. And you might be a pretty good guy, but you're not a pretty good guy in terms of God. And until God gets you to the place where you realize, I'm lost, you're never going to want to be saved. Oh, you might be religious. You might come dutifully to a church. You might have all the trappings of Christianity and think Jesus is a pretty good guy. But until you realize you're lost, you're going to hell 
without Jesus Christ because of your sin and that self-righteousness is taken away and you realize like I did 20-something years ago, like Mary did 20-something years ago, that, oh, if God takes my breath away, I'm going to fall into hell. When that realization comes upon you, that's God taking a big rock out of the way and you're not far from everlasting life. Because you realize like a thief on the cross that I deserve this punishment, then you're willing to look to the Savior and say, Lord, remember me. All right, so before a man gets saved, God's got to gather out those stones. Well, how many of you are saved? Can you say amen? amen. <laughs> that was weak. Can you say amen? amen? All right, warm yourself up. Just do it, you know. Amen, amen, glory. All right, all right? Put your hands up as many times as you want today, all right? But um, before a saved man grows, you know what God's got to do? He's got to get the self out of him. He's got to get you out of the way because you will hinder the growth that God wants. So he's got to get yourself, your pride. He's got to gather out those stones. Where do those stones come from? Look at Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Look at verse number uh, 12. Nice to hear those pages turning. Hebrews chapter 3, verse number 12. The Bible says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily. That's what we're trying to do here this morning. While it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin makes you hard. Sin makes you callous. Sin makes you unmovable and unable for growth to really happen. If your heart is the ground, it's the soil, then sin is what makes you hard and keeps that soil from bringing forth the fruit that God wants it to bring forth. You remember the story of Hezekiah, a great king in Judah's history? One of the great kings of Judah's history, there were a lot of bad kings. There were like 19 kings and one queen or something like that in the nation of Judah. Many of them were bad. Some of them were good. Asa was pretty good. Jehoshaphat, he wasn't jumping Jehoshaphat, just Jehoshaphat. He was pretty good. Hezekiah was good. Josiah was good. Hezekiah was one of the good ones. And he's trying to restore the temple. He's trying to get, you know, the nation back on track. And he tells the priests, before we can really reinstitute the Passover, before we can really get going like we want to get going, he says, you guys, you priests need to, quote, carry forth the filthiness out of this place, right? He says, sanctify yourselves and carry forth the filthiness out of this place. Get the junk out of the temple so we can start moving in the direction that God wants us to move, that's what sanctification is, gathering out the stones, gathering out the hard things, getting rid of the stuff that you know is going to drag you down and keep God from working. Why? So we can start moving and you can start going on the right track. Hey, can I ask a question? Can we do a heat check? Pun intended. Can we do a heat check? Do you want to grow? <laughs> I want to grow. It's a scary prayer sometimes to grow because sometimes God takes your legs out when you want to grow. God humbles you sometimes. We'll talk about that later. But do you want to grow? Let me ask you one more time. Do you want the husbandmen to work in you? 
I mean, don't you want to know that God's working in your life and God's working on you? Who doesn't want that? I mean, you got to have something crazy in you that you don't want to know that God's working on you. Well, if you want God to work on you, what might the Lord have to gather out of you before he plans? He might have to get some stuff out of you before he can do that work that he can do with his seed, but he has to get some stuff out of there. Maybe it's some anger. That stuff's deadly. It's deadly. You know why anger is so deadly? It makes you think you're right. When you're angry, you think you're right to be angry. I deserve to be angry. You know? That's the deceptiveness of it. Pride deceives a man's heart into thinking he's right to scream and swing his arms around and grit his teeth and spit and do all those things that we do when we're angry. And sometimes you're angry for a good cause and that even makes it worse because it's like, oh, this is righteous indignation. I'm like Jesus flipping over the table and the, you know, the money changes and let me just get a whip and I'm going to start killing somebody and whipping some people like Jesus did because, hey, Jesus is the only one that could get angry and not sin. <laughs> you can't handle it. Bible says, be ye angry and sin not. <laughs> Because when you get angry, you end up sinning. <laughs> you end up hurting somebody with your words or your body or your actions. So maybe God's got to knock you down a few posts and clear out some of that anger and that self so you could grow. Maybe he's got to get some envy out of you. Maybe there's just some envy rooting in you, some bitterness from some envy that, well, I wanted this, and how come that person has that, and why don't I have this, and I look at everybody else, and they're so this, and they're so that. You don't know what they have going on behind their doors. You can't judge after the sight of your eyes. <laughs> but God's got to work that out of you. That's satanic, that envy. That's what this Lucifer had in the beginning. Oh, I will be like the most high. It's pride and envy go together like evil twins, like evil cousins or something like that. So maybe God's got to get some envy out of you and have you have be content with the fact that, hey, I'm saved. Hey, I'm washed in the blood. Hey, I'm breathing today. Hey, I'm on the right side of the grass today. Hey, my dad's doing okay today. Hey, my sister's doing all right today. Hey, I got a Bible in front of me. You know, we got a lot of things. Gratitude is a good attitude. We're so quick to complain and see the glass half empty. Well, you don't realize it's spilling over onto the saucer. You don't realize there's so much that you've got. I'm guilty of that too. I always see the glass half empty. I'll look at this congregation. I'll say, why wasn't this person here today? My wife will be like, the place was packed. I know, but where was that person? She has to biff me on the back of the head. Right? We got to get like that. Wake up tomorrow and take your first five minutes and start thanking God. God, I, I got some sleep last night. God, I could breathe today. God, I could see today. God, you still love me today. God, you're still on the throne today. God, you haven't abandoned me today. God, you want the best for me today. God, I could speak to you today. God's got to gather out some stones before he's going to help you grow. Maybe there's a little bit of pride in you because you think you deserve better. You think you know better. You think you are better. And God's got to say, mm -mm. got to get that out of you, man. Got to humble you a little bit. I don't want to do it, but I got to just break that leg, sheep, because you're going to go off the cliff. I got to break that leg and bring you back into the fold. Oh, I don't like it any more than you do, but sometimes God, if he's the husbandman, he's doing some things to work some things out of you. You know what's something he's got to work out of all of us so we can grow? Unbelief. That verse right there says, watch out for the unbelief. That's probably our biggest fault, right? That we forget what God said. We forget what God's about. We forget that God promised us. We forget that God's coming back. We forget that God wants the best for us. We forget that God is God. Amen. He's like, maybe I need to gather out some of those stones to remind you, I am God and there is none else. Amen. And I'm the husbandman. 
I'm working on you. Brethren, if, if I stepped on any of your toes, because I stepped all over mine just now, right? If I didn't preach at you just now, I preached at me. I just broke all my toes stepping on them. You know, this keeps me warm. Let's get me a little soft shoe two-step. But anyway, if, I, if, if, you, if you know those things are in your life, if you don't let those things go, you're never going to grow. You've got to let some stuff go, man. And you don't know how to let them go. I know. Ask God to help you let them go. Lord, I don't know how to let go of that anger. My voice cracked. I don't know how to let go of that envy. I don't, I don't know how to let go of that pride. God says, I could take it from you. Take it. <laughs> I don't want it. Take it. And let God gather out the stones, and then you can start to grow. Which brings us to number two. Go to Hosea. Number two, that's the first principle of husbandry, is before you plant, you got to clear the field. And here's the second principle, Hosea chapter 10. Hosea chapter 10. Joel, Amos, oh, Daniel, Hosea, where am I? I don't know what I'm doing here. All right. Second thing is before, now, before you sow the seed, the Lord's got to break up the ground. Hosea, I know the pages are stuck together in Hosea, but Hosea chapter 10. We should do sword drills, all right? Do last man standing. Some of you be like, that, that'll warm you up. Hosea 10, 12 says this. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Two times in the Bible, the Lord tells his people to break up their, quote, fallow ground. Fallow means land that is unsowed, uncultivated, neglected, unplowed, not tilled. That's fallow ground. I got some patches of ground in the backyard. I need to seed this spring. And before I seed them, I got to till the ground first. Because if you don't till the ground, the seed has a very hard time getting in the soil and growing. You got to break up that fallow ground so the seed has a little clod that it can kind of get into and, and do its work. Now, I tell you, the tilling process can be painful for the soil. Because if you have one of those, you know, you got those electric tillers and some of you just, everybody has lawn service, so you don't know what I'm talking about. But those of you that, you know, don't have that, but you know, uh, the ones that laugh said, oh, I know what you're talking about. But you get that little tool out there with those teeth and you kind of push it in there and it kind of grinds up and that teeth kind of digs into the soil. It's not like a probably pleasant experience for the soil. You're like, what is that about? I just watched the guys show up. No, no, you guys, some of you got out there and do it yourself, right? And you get out there and you, you're tilling the ground and it, it breaks up the ground. It's a painful process. But it's a needful process because that tilling, it aerates the ground. It allows the moisture and the oxygen and the nutrients to get down in there. Why? So the seed can grow. And here is the sobering reality of husbandry for you. I don't even like saying it. God's got to break you before he makes you. God's got to break you before he makes you. God uses broken things. Go to Luke chapter 2. I'll show you Luke chapter 2. I don't like saying it. Didn't expect a lot of amens there, but it's just the truth. Doesn't mean he's going to kill you. 
just means he might have to break up some fallow ground. He might have to run those teeth over you and break up some of those dry clods that, where the seed can't get in. Look at Luke chapter 2. My son asked me about this verse the other day, and it's a, it's a verse that's pretty interesting about Jesus. Luke 2.52 is the last verse of Luke 2. Those pages should be fresh because Christmas was less than a month ago. Okay, so Luke 2. It says, and Jesus, notice it's the name of a man, Jesus, increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus, the Son of God, he's increasing. Jesus is the Son of God, but his father, the husbandman, helped him grow as a man. You all heard the heat come on, right? You're all excited now? (laughs) But that's a man. As a man, Jesus had to grow. Jesus had to learn. Jesus had to be shaped and cultivated and brought into what God wanted him as a man to be. The husband was helping him grow. How did the father cultivate growth in the Son of God? He had no stones to gather out. He had no anger to repent of. He had no envy to watch his heart about. But we'll go to Hebrews chapter 5. Let me show you what God had to do to the son. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Hebrews 5, verse 8. Speaking about Jesus Christ. It says... Though he were a son. Are you a son of God today? Okay. Though he were a son, yet learn. Whoa. He learned? Jesus learned? As a man, he learned. He had to read his Bible. He had to pray. He had to fast. He had to seek. As a man, he had to go through the things that you have to go through so he could be a faithful high priest. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect. Whoa, whoa, you, wait a minute. You told me Jesus Christ is the son of God. Yes, but he also had to be perfected as a man. You say, how does that work? I don't know. <laughs> that's, the, that's the dual nature of Jesus Christ, right? All God, all man, <laughs> right? There's a part of you that is perfect, and sinless and already seated in heaven. But guess what? I'm not looking at that part. I'm looking at the part that still has to be perfected. And you learn obedience like the son by the things you suffer, by the things you go through, by the things God puts you through, by the tilling process. That is the prerequisite. The father let Jesus suffer. Why? Because that's the prerequisite for growth in all his children. They say in the gym, right? We got some of our our gym rats in here working out together. They say what? As old as Hans and Franz on Saturday Night Live, they've been saying this. No pain, no gain. We say it. We know biologically the muscle has to be hurt before it can grow. You're hurting yourself. Right? You don't realize that. You're hurting yourself. You're going there and you're picking up whatever it is you're I don't want to, whatever it is, your 50s or your 100s, whatever you're picking up, you know, how many plates you're putting on. Some of you are like, yeah, I got three plates. Whatever it is you're putting on, right? You're putting on those plates and you're subjecting your muscle to strain so it's then hurt, so fibers tear and it builds back stronger. 
You're actually hurting yourself and causing yourself to suffer. So for the next few days, you're sore, and it's a good sore because you're like, oh, that's some growth. I'm going to get some gains. We say that in the gym. And in the garden, it's the same process. The tilling process is the pain that breaks up the ground to allow the gains in your garden. you got to break some stuff up. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, that you were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You were called to go through the things that his son went through. You're a disciple, right? We're talking to disciples in the upper room. You're saying, I'm following Jesus Christ. Well, before you follow him to heaven, you got to follow him on the jagged road called earth. Right? That's just the truth. And in Philippians 3.10, Paul narrows that fellowship down a little bit. He says, it's the fellowship of his sufferings. That's the prerequisite for resurrection power. Something's got to be broken and die before life can spring up. We don't like that. I don't like that. The flesh doesn't like that. You know why? Because it's scary. Now go to 1 John to the right just a little bit. 1 John. Look at verse number, uh, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4.18, the Bible says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. You know why we hate this idea of suffering? We hate this idea of being broken. We hate this idea of maybe bearing a burden, of God putting us through a trial, God putting us through a test. We're afraid to be broken because we forget the Father's love. If you're afraid, you're forgetting the Father's love. When a husbandman tills the ground, he breaks it up out of love for the coming vine. He sees that beautiful flower, that beautiful fruit, that beautiful vine that could come from that dead, lifeless ground. So as he breaks it up, it's not out of sadistic nature. It's not out of a joy to see harm. It's not out of some kind of just thrill of seeing people sweat underneath the burden of those weights. Is He's breaking up that ground because he sees the beauty that could come out of that dead ground. And when God puts us through these things that sometimes he puts us through, crucibles sometimes even, it's not out of some sadistic pleasure in watching you squirm and writhe. It's just he knows that's the way to get something beautiful to come out of you. The alabaster box has to break for the ointment and the savor to fill the room. I don't like it any more than you do, but that's it. That's what should motivate a husband to cultivate the best out of his bride. You notice the root word of husbandry is husband. And a husband is supposed to love his wife as Christ loved the church and be cultivating and trying to help his wife grow into what God could make her to be. You're the husband and that's supposed to be helping do that. You're welcome, ladies. we got a lot of guys that sit on their fat butts and want to be served when God says, if you want to be chief, you're supposed to be the minister. You're supposed to be the husband. You're supposed to be the one washing the proverbial feet. You're supposed to be the one sanctifying and cleansing. You're supposed to be the one going outside your comfort zone. 
to help that lady become who God can make her to be. You're a husband. You're supposed to be engaged in husbandry, not catering, not sitting back, not being served, but serving. That's the husbandry. Now, please don't till your wife. All right, don't say, this pain is for you, baby. No, that's not what I mean. It just means that the principle, the motivating factor is supposed to be love. Husbands love your wives, right? God loved the church. He's working in us and working through us because he loves us. And there is no fear in love, but we resist being broken. We say, God, I don't want to be broken. I want to be strong. I want to be victorious. I don't want to get a call like Pat did about his son. I don't want to go through things that I hear other people going through. I'm scared. You know why we're scared? Because we forget how much the Father loves us. We resist being broken because we forget the Lord wants to get the best out of us. If you are going through something and it's not fault of your own, it's not your sin that made you stupid, it's God, I was doing the best I could and this tidal wave came across my life, maybe the solace could be underneath the storm that, Lord, you must be working something out. There must be a silver lining at the end of this storm because you love me too much. You died on the cross for me. You wouldn't leave me now. If you died on the cross for me and went to hell and back for me, surely you want the best for me. And when that love becomes perfect, complete, it'll push that fear out. It'll start to push those weeds out of your mind. And you realize, even though I'm scared, Father, you haven't forgotten me. Even though I don't understand, I know the one that does. I'm not talking like ethereal, abstract, philosophical booyaka right now, people. I'm talking, don't put that on the thing. All right, that's just... I'm talking about something like where you can live. When the world's going sideways, you're like, Lord, I was doing the best you can. He goes, I know, I know. I'm just, I'm trying to get some more fruit out of you. When, 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 when things are going, I don't understand, Father, I'm scared, what's happening? No, no, don't worry. I got you. I'm just trying to break up some ground over here. I could get some more seed over there. I could get some more growth out of you over here. And we resist it. And what we resist persists. If you would just yield and just say, Lord, and I'm working on this too. <laughs> I ain't got it yet, but I want to get it. What if you just looked at all the trials of life and say, wow, Lord, you're working on me. You're trying to get some fruit out of me. Instead of just complaining about it, instead of just griping about it, instead of just like, oh, I just want this to end. If you would yield, it would be over. Amen. If you would yield, it would be over. Oh, the tears might still be there. And the pain might still be there. But the thing we add to it, the grief of like, I just want this to stop. If you just take that off the table and say, Father, have your way. You're the potter, I'm the clay. And you just let it happen. You might be out of that valley sooner than you think. But see, you can't yield just to get out of the valley. All right, Lord, I've yielded. I just, will it end now? Yielding, what everybody to know, I have yielded. The yellow sign is up, I'm yielding. You go first, God, all right? Now just take this cup from me. No, it's gotta be just nevertheless. Jesus yielded in the garden, he still had to go to the cross, right? And you yield and you just still gotta maybe walk through that valley, but you know what? Now you know God's getting something out of me. How come the Son of God never complained about all of his sufferings? You know, I didn't catch any of that in the Bible. Psalm 129 is a, you don't have to turn there, it's a prophetic psalm about Jesus. It says, the plowers 
plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. They literally tilled his body. Those Romans took that cat of nine tails with those things coming off, those leather strips with a piece of animal tooth or glass or metal, and they'd take that thing and they'd whip it. It would catch his back and they'd rip and it would make these long furrows like you do in a field when you're going to plant, these long open trenches in his back. His body was literally tilled and ripped open. I didn't hear a complaint. I didn't hear him you know, saying, oh, God's going to get you. I remember him at the Last Supper saying that the bread had to be broken before it be given as life to the world. Something had to break before it could be passed out for everybody. I think the reason why Jesus Christ never complained, I know he was God, I get it, but he was also in the flesh. And I know, I think one of the reasons why Jesus, the man, never complained or threw up his hands and gave up, because he could say in John chapter 5, verse 20, the Father loveth the Son. He never doubted his Father's love. He never stopped understanding that if I'm doing the best I can and I'm staying in the will of God and it's not sin and God's put me through this ringer perhaps, it must be because my Father is working out something bigger than my little plans. He never forgot that. He could say, the Father loves me. When the whole world was turning against me, the Father loves me. That's amazing. That's amazing. My question to you is this. Do you, do you doubt the Father's love for you? If you're tormented by the fear, that might be that you've forgotten that the Lord loves you. You know what, today? If you're saved today, the Lord loves you. Not like I love you. My love stinks. Your love for each other stinks. Even the most crazy in love couple in here today, your love stinks compared to the love the Father has for you. Such love that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's an everlasting love. It's an unyielding love. It's an unconditional love. It's a love that will not let you go. You need to be told that, people. I could preach on your sin and your anger, but you know what to be told? The Father loves you. And he's working something out in you. And he doesn't hate you and he's not angry at you all the time. It might just be that, son, we're trying to break up some fallow ground because I'm going to bring something beautiful out of you. So just be patient. Why would you think the Father doesn't love you? Where'd that come from? Did it come from the cross? When you looked at the cross and said, oh, that's what... No, God commended his love toward us. He said, you want to see what love is? There it is. <laughs> it's the cross. <laughs> That's the ultimate demonstration of God's love to you. There never needs to be any doubt. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him for his all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Romans 8.32. Right? It's an amazing love. You know, Adoniram Judson was a missionary to Burma, and he went through it, boy. I mean, he was whipped, and he was incarcerated, and he was dragged through the streets. Watched his family get sick. He got sick. Malnutrition. You know what Adoniram Judson said in the 19th century? If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. The problem is we're not certain. If you're not certain the Father loves you, how are you going to survive? Let alone grow. 
Because the tilling process is real. You got to break up the ground before the seed takes root. And then number three, if you go to Ephesians 5, I'm going to hurry here. Uh, Ephesians 5, please. We're talking about principles of husbandry. My father, the husbandman. Ephesians 5, look at verse number 25. I quoted it before, but the third thing I want to say is this. Once the seed goes into the ground, the Lord's got to nourish it. Amen? Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives, you're welcome, ladies, as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it, nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. A husband from the word husbandry is to cherish his wife like the husband cherishes his people. You know, when the seed goes in the ground, it needs light and water in order to grow. And when the Lord gets into you, you need light and water in order to grow. The seed needs the light of the S-U-N. And you need the light of the S-O-N to grow right. But you know what's coming out now? It's, it's more and more. All these studies are coming out now about the benefits of sunlight, especially on your eyes. There's all these studies now that sunlight on your eyes is good for you. And think about what's happening in the world right now. We spend so much time looking at artificial light that they're saying our natural rhythms are getting messed up because we got people up all night staring at blue light and blue screens and artificial light, so much so that it's messing up the natural rhythms that God put into our bodies so we can rest. Because we're looking at artificial light. Amen. And now that you're saved, you're supposed to get the S-O-N on your eyes. you got to get the sun on your eyes for you to work right. You want to go to Psalms? Go to Psalms with me. Psalm 31. Let's just flip through Psalms a little bit. It's in the Bible about getting the sun in your eyes or on your eyes. Psalm 31, verse uh, 16. Psalm 31, verse 16. The psalmist writes, David, make thy face to shine upon thy servant. Save me for thy mercy's sake. Look at Psalm 67. It's all over the place. I'll pick out a few. Psalm 67. Psalm 67. Look at verse 1. Psalm 67, verse number 1. God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. How about Psalm 80? Psalm 80. Psalm 80, verse number 3. Psalm 80. Verse 3, the Bible says, Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. How about Psalm 119? Psalm 119, the longest chapter in your Bible about the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse number 135. Psalm 119, verse 135. There it is again. Make 
thy face to shine upon thy servant and teach me thy statutes. Can I ask, is that your prayer? What are you looking to today? When God's people spend too much time looking at the world's light, we get messed up. Like your body can get messed up. Your spiritual walk can get messed up. How much time do your eyes spend looking at the world? How much time do your eyes spend looking to Jesus Christ? Oh, it's quiet. You wouldn't want me to check your screen time, would you? And compare it to your Bible time, would you? Myself included, right? I forgot my phone a couple of days this week. I had the greatest time in the world. Just knowing it was in the car somewhere. But everybody's going to it'll be there when you need to pick it up. And the world is there when you want to pick it up. But if you can keep your eyes, like Mel Sabaka said, keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. We're finding out now neurologically, your eyes looking at the right things like the sun, it's good for you. They're saying these things that getting light on your eyes first thing in the morning starts making your whole system work the right way. How about Psalm 34? Are you doing that? You're getting light on your eyes first thing in the morning. When you roll over, you wake up and God gives you another wake up. Do you look to him? Or do you look to your reminders on your phone and your emails on your phone? Or do you look to the Lord who gave you that day that you're waking up to? Psalm 34 says this, verse 4. I sought the Lord. And you know what? He heard me. How about that? I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened. They looked to the light, they got some light. And their faces were not ashamed. And then he could testify, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Hey, can anybody testify to that today? Say, hey, when I look to the Lord, he helped me out. Amen? Right? Did God ever let you down when you really looked to him? No. And if you think he's let you down, the answer is still coming. It's still coming. None that wait on him will ever be ashamed, he said. None that wait on him. So keep looking to him. Keep seeking him. Don't seek the world's light. Stop seeking the world. Well, once I fix this, then I'll seek God. You got it backwards. You got to seek God first, and then he'll fix that thing. Once I get my marriage right, then I'll get back to church. Oh, you got it backwards. Once I get my attitude right, then I'll get into the Bible. You got it backwards. You got it backwards. Once I clean up my act, then I'll get saved. You got it backwards. It's backwards. You're looking at the world's light. You got to look to him and get that light. And you know what? You get saved first, then God makes you good. You get right with God, then your marriage gets back, on, gets back online. You get your heart right with God, then your heart gets right with the people around you. They looked unto him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. None that wait on him will be ashamed. Go to Psalm 126. That making any sense? Look to the light, people. Get some of that light on your eyes. Get your eyes illuminated with what God said. So you need light if you're going to grow. It's good for you. But you know what else you need? That light is that communion, that fellowship, that just kind of interaction between you and God, that you're looking to him and not looking to yourself or the world. But you know what you also need? You need water. And I know we always want to say, well, the water, that's the word of God. And then it, it could be, yes. It, it's always typified the water of the word. I get it. John 15, 3, I get it. Now you're clean through the word, which I've spoken unto you. But we got the word, don't you? Don't you? You got God's word, don't you? 
What do you need in terms of husbandry? Look at Psalm 126, verse 5. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. You know what that tears are to me? That's some passion. That's some desire. That's some, God, I want to see you work, and I don't care if i got to pray all night. I want to see you do something in my family and do something in my heart and do something in a lost person's life. Do something in our church. Just do something. And they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Now, we usually see that verse and say the sower is the evangelist. You know, I've got a book of John on my bookshelf and it's got the sower sowing the seed into the world. But I want to challenge you that I think that that's talking about the Savior first. The Savior was the sower first. Because when I read about my Savior in the book of Hebrews, the Bible says in Hebrews 5, 7, that in the days of his flesh, he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. He said, my life is going to be like a seed that goes in the ground. And when Jesus Christ died and was getting ready to go into that ground like a seed, you know what there was? There were tears. There was crying for you. Why? For the joy that was set before him. And they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. And Jesus Christ had tears and crying. Why? Because he saw joy of you sitting here today, saved and washed by his blood. He was the original sower. So I got to ask myself now, if he's the model, if he's the pattern, do you have any desire? Is there any passion to see God's word bear fruit in your life? C.S. Lewis said this very scathing comment about us. Quote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Isn't that the truth? We're like playing in the dirt and God's like, look at the riches. And we're like, but look at the dirt. Do you have any desire for the true riches? For, the, for what God's got for you? I'm not talking about fuzzy, ethereal things. I'm talking about real things. I'm talking about real rewards and real streets of gold and real kingdoms and real cities to rule over and a real future for a real you. It's waiting for you. It's just you can't see it yet. But it's there, laid up in heaven, reserved for you. You want it? You desire it? You have any earnest for it? Or is it just like, look what I could do with the dirt. That's what he said. We're so satisfied with dirt. And he's like, how can I commit to you the true riches? Do you want to see someone get saved? I challenge you, how bad do you want it? Are you willing to shed any tears for that soul? Just pray, Lord, give me tears 
for that soul. Let me see them in hell. Let me see them burning and screaming. And give me a burden, Lord, to want to see them get saved. Give me a burden, Lord, like Paul, who I'm supposed to follow, that said, I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren. He says, I wish I would rather go to hell than see those people burn and see my nation perish. Where's that come from? Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can give you such a desire because that's the Spirit of Christ that would go to hell for others. That Spirit's working through Paul to say, I could wish that I could go to hell to see these people get saved. Not to be content if they get saved or lost. No, I'm not content if they're saved or lost. I want them to be saved. Well, God, yes, I know God works it out. I know whatever the outcome, God is glorified. I get it. But you know what our burden should be? Save them, Lord. Save them. Have mercy on them, Lord. Reach them, Lord. Reach that little granddaughter. Reach that friend. Reach that husband. Reach that wife. I don't want to see them perish. Reach them. They just sow in tears shall reap in joy. If your heart's cold, say, Lord, break my heart that I might weep over somebody who's going to perish. That's what might be God's trying to get out of you before he moves in that person's life because God's as much working on you as he is on that lost person. He's put those lost people in your life to see what he's doing through you to reach them. He's working on you to reach them. He's got to do something in you before he can reach them. How about this? Do you want to see yourself grow? Get some victory? Get some blessing? Get to the promised land? Is there any weeping? over your sin? Any weeping over your complacency? Any weeping over the fact that you don't weep? Any weeping over the fact that you couldn't blush if you tried? Any weeping of the fact that sometimes, God, I'm as hard as a rock sitting on a winter day. You can't move me for anything. Now bother you at all? Deep down underneath all your burdens, does something bother you that God can't move you like he used to move you the first month you were saved? That doesn't bother you. That should bother you. Lord, let it bother us. Let us not be satisfied. We are, C.S. Lewis said, we're far too easily pleased. Well, I came to church today and I listened to Pat Rand today, so I'm good. No, that's not the measure of all things. Jesus is the measure of all things. Am I like him? Am I like him? A.W. Tozer said, may God grant us a desire for God that supersedes all other desires. May God grant us a desire for God that supersedes. You ain't going to do that diet if you don't want to. You ain't going to go to the gym if you don't want it. You're not going to learn that new habit this year, pick up that instrument this year, get that black belt this year, if there's not first a desire. If there first be a willing mind, that's what God's looking for. So if you want to grow and see God, the husband, work in you, you got to be like, Lord, I want it. I want it. I want to want it more. I want to want you more. Help me, Lord, to want you more and be willing to lay aside any weight that's going to keep me from you. And finally, and very briefly, John 15. We'll finish there in John 15. It's very short and not like these other points. So don't get nervous. But I want to just say this. Just where's the passion? Where's the zeal? <laughs> The Bible says of Jesus Christ, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Many years ago, we went to a youth camp and this preacher preached a message called, are you eaten up with it? Are you there, Josh? Is that McGahee, I think, preached that message. Are you eaten up with it? And he just preached on that. That's the only verse he turned to, but he only preached on that verse. <laughs> it was a good verse, though. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. 
Just preached on how Jesus Christ was eaten up with the things of God, consumed by the things of God, just zealous for the things of God. And where is that in us? If he lives inside of us and his spirit's inside of us, where is any of that passion? Or is it just drowned behind the rocks and the stones that God has to clear out? But the last thing I want to say is this in John 15. This is brief. When you do start bearing fruit, and many of you are, you know, and it's things we can't see with our eyes, but I know God's working on you and God's bringing forth fruit. Some things we can see, but there's plenty that we can see that God's doing behind the scenes. You know what's going to happen? The Lord's going to prune you to bring forth more fruit. When it finally starts bringing forth fruit, then you prune the tree. So it brings forth more fruit. John 15, 2, he says, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. We'll talk about that another time. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. You know what that tells me? Nobody has ever arrived. I'm going to start with me. The last year and the things that have come on the heels of my son, I feel like I'm learning how to be a Christian all over again. How to trust all over again. I've had to talk to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know if I've trusted you for the past 20-something years. You put me in a place where I've got to actually trust you when I can't trace you. When I trust you and I know what's going to happen, that's not really faith. It's when your back's against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army's approaching and you're like, where do we go? That's when you have to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Right. And that's what God can really, right there, right there is where he really starts working. That's the plateau he wants to take you to. Because the process of growth never stops. Just look at me. I keep getting horizontal. I stop getting vertical. I keep growing this way. No, but the process of growth never stops. If you want a fruit tree to keep growing the right way, you got to prune it. You got to cut some things out of it. You know why? That pruning helps the air flow through it. Helps the light get to it. So more fruit grows. And to cultivate more fruit in a believer, the Lord has to purge you. He's got to cut some stuff out of you and even take some things away from you. That's, there's no plateau. So brethren, when you're doing the best you can, don't be surprised when it feels like God's squeezing you even when you're doing right, even when you just conquered a valley, even when you just came through a storm and you get a little honeymoon and then something else comes down. Don't be surprised. You know when you work out, I apparently don't enough, but when you work out, you got to mix it up because the muscles get bored. You got to confuse those muscles a little bit. You know why? So you don't plateau. You shake up that routine, right? So you don't plateau. You go, all right, I'm going to do, I'm going to do supersets, buys and try. Right? If your body just gets used to it, you stop growing. But if you mix it up, you confuse the muscle and you get a little bit of growth again. And sometimes God's got to shake you up. So you don't get so complacent with the routine. You don't get so stuck in the machine. Okay, it's Sunday. I'm going to church. And here's Thursday. Maybe I'll go to church. And here's this. And I'll do that. And here's this. And I'll do that. And you know the routine. And we're going to go to church in the park in May. And this is going to happen. And blah, blah, blah. Listen, the rapture is going to be a shakeup. It's going to be like the ultimate shakeup. But sometimes God's got to shake you up. He's got to say, well, you know what? What about this? And what about that? He throws a curveball at you. In education now, they're talking about throwing curveballs at students. Not literally, that would be fun. But like, 
Like, okay, I taught you how to write a thesis here. Now I'm going to throw a curveball at you and change the circumstances and see if you could take what you learned here and transfer it over here, right? That's what's the big, you know, new buzzwords in education, transfer learning. But it's been around since the Bible. God puts you through something over here. You learn the lesson. Then God says, I'm going to change the scenario. I'm going to mix it up. And can you take that lesson you learned over there about trusting me and can you apply it here? And that's how you grow. That's how you get strong. That's how you reach those plateaus, those next levels that we all want to get to. John 15, 8, well, last verse, the Lord says this. He says, herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall be my disciples. The husbandman is not satisfied with a little fruit. He wants to get a lot of fruit out of you. So sometimes if he's purging, that just means, all right, Lord, we're ready for our next adventure. You decide what the trial means. It could mean, oh, my life is over. Or what if it was, Lord, let's go. What are you doing in my life today? What's coming today? What are you bringing me to today? What next level are you rising me to today? What are you mixing up today so you get more fruit out of this little old sinner like me? John 15, 1. I just want you to look at that verse again, and we'll pray. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Aren't you glad your father is the husbandman? Not a stranger, not a tyrant. Your father is the husbandman. Because the process of growth can be confusing, painful, hard to see most times. It's like watching yourself on a diet or when you're working out. It's like you're looking at yourself all the time. You don't see the growth. You're like, is anything happening? But you need to know that your father is the one behind it. Your father, the one who loved you, the one who gave Christ for you, that's the one that's working those things out in you. And you can have confidence that your father is the one working to get fruit out of you. He's not rested since the seventh day. He hasn't rested since the seventh day because he's always working to get the best out of you. I pray that's a comfort to you. Let's bow our heads.